I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. And thank you for joining us on this Cardioscripts Classics episode, where we take a step back in time and explore literature that got us to where we are today. Welcome back, Cardioscripts audience. This is part two of our classic episode on dual antiplatelet therapy in ACS and stenting. As you will recall, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Dunn. So welcome back, Dr. Dunn. And we're going to pick up where we left off. We had just finished a conversation of some of the history of the more potent antiplatelet agents, Ticagrelor and Prostagrel, and how they came to be standard therapy. And now we're going to jump into our conversation about ISAR REACT-5. And that leads us into the trial that you were previously on Cardioscripts to discuss. And if you haven't listened to that episode, there's a lot more detail included there. That's episode two of Cardioscripts with Dr. Dunn on ISAR REACT-5. But let's just give the overview of that and how it fits into this overall story. Yeah, so this is like the heavyweight prize fight, right? So nobody does like head-to-head randomized trials. And certainly in industry, if this were industry-sponsored, it wouldn't happen. Unfortunately, I think because... You know, it is probably a publicly funded trial. There are some short steps in it, but essentially you're looking at a similar patient population to what we've been talking about with this ACS population and then a randomization to Prasagor versus Ticagrelor. The issue with it is that it's open label probably to you know, avoid um, the expense of blinding um, these patients. And then the, there are some really um, interesting self-reporting mechanisms for event rates. And so there are certainly some flaws in the design of the trial. But even so, I think most people would have predicted Ticagrelor to be better um, than Prasagrel, specifically because we see this mortality reduction with Ticagrelor, and that may or may not be due to antiplatelet therapy. And there was all this you know, now we know it's an anti-infective and there's all this like kind of crazy stuff around the edges with Ticagrelor. And so everyone was kind of just saying like, why do that trial? Um, we know the answer to that. And then lo and behold, the trial results come out with Prasagrel as the superior drug in terms of efficacy. And I think that definitely took everyone by surprise. Uh, I still don't, you know, if you can go back and listen to my thoughts about that, I don't know what to really make of that, you know, except to say that, you know, potentially you you know, either there's, there's flaws in design, there's more non-adherence with Ticagrelor um, in this trial, and maybe uh, this idea that if you exclude populations of harm from treating with Prasagrel, that event rates are actually pretty good. You know, I think the impact of the difference was also surprising to me. So we've talked about the absolute risk reduction seen in some of these other trials. The major adverse cardiovascular endpoint was reduced by 2.4% with Prasagrel compared to Ticagrelor. And again, what confuses folks a lot too when they talk about this trial is that there was similar rates of bleeding. So it's it's hard for us to conceptualize how we can see this reduction in MACE without seeing an increase in bleeding. So after ISR React, and you've had a year now since we recorded our episode together to digest the impact of this, have you seen anything change in practice? And how are you approaching the decision of what P2Y12 to use in your patients right now? We haven't changed a ton of what we we've done before, which is um, we still do a, a large backbone of clopidogrel and, you know, a fair amount of ticagrelor as well. And I think the reasons for that come back to access. And 
I think if anything, we're seeing more practical use just because there is a generic formulation that is reasonably affordable and managed care solutions push us one way or the other. And so unfortunately, that's the frustration with practicing in the U.S. is we're access driven and a lot of our care is dictated by that. But I, I do find a lot of skepticism when navigating a specific patient where access isn't an issue. There still is a lot of skepticism of Prasagirl, you know, with interventional cardiologists. And uh, I don't think ISO React 5 is, has been tremendously warmly received in the U.S. So I, I certainly see a lot of skepticism as well by people who are leaders in interventional cardiology. And uh, for a lot of the reasons that we talked about, I think with the, the, the conduct of that trial and the design of it. Um, and so I think it, until, I, I think there'll be more pressure put on the use of Prasquil by its generic availability than really the data at this point. So one thing that overlays a lot of the trials that we've discussed today as far as time sequence is the conversation around duration. So we talked about how Cure allowed three to 12 months and you have an average of nine. The Plato and the, the Triton trials really came in close to 12 months, um, 12 to 15 really. And so we've established in a lot of guidelines and other things that ideally 12 months after an ACS event is the goal. But there's motivation on all sides to find a way to shorten duration, so partially because of cost and bleeding, and in some cases to do ongoing longer-term antiplatelet therapy. And I think there are no less than 442 trials on this topic alone. (laughs) So where would you like to begin discussing duration, Dr. Dunn? Um, I I like the DAP trial because I think it illustrates what a beautiful mess duration is. Okay. So from a standpoint of the, the, the DAP trial, tell folks a little bit about when it was done and, and what we sort of were looking for in that trial. So uh, DAP was, was a 2014 trial, uh, which tried to address this idea of um, shorter versus longer um, durations of dual antiplatelet therapy um, and looking at uh, really the, the inverse of what we're doing in the modern context, which is shortening, they were looking to see if there's benefit to longer duration. And so they were looking at a, a 12 versus 24 month strategy with dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, and this is written a little bit off the back because I think there's been a secret thought in the back of people's minds that maybe just everybody should be on dual antiplatelet therapy with cardiovascular disease. And there's been lots of attempts to address whether that's so with Charisma and Pegasus, and Pegasus being more successful to demonstrate that. And so I think a lot of people felt like lifelong dual antiplatelet therapy would be a viable strategy. And what we kind of see with that um, is diminishing returns with benefit. And so overall, you see benefit to longer durations of dual antiplatelet therapy, but you also see more bleeding. And so we see that, you know, and keep in mind, too, in 2014, we're still including some older, older generation drug-leading stents um, as well. And now that we're moving into, you know, very new platform designs, new drugs, um, that, that that calculus is changing as well. And so I think it just illustrates the complexity of this decision-making where it's not really a population-level decision anymore um, because we can't really make the tide rise without also making bleeding rise with it and really getting to where we probably need to think a little bit more patient-specific about this. Related to duration, too, I think one of the interesting uh, maybe tangents to this has been once you do decide that you're not going to do dual antiplatelet therapy any longer, the conversation has gotten a little complicated on what's continued long-term. 
And so I think with Twilight and Tico and some of the other trials we've um, had in the last year, the, the question is, should aspirin be what we de-escalate off of or should it be the P2Y12 inhibitor? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those, if you're you're sitting back and you're, you're reading through the history of, of how these drugs came to be, a very important inquisitive question up front would be, why didn't they just look at a P2Y12 inhibitor versus aspirin? instead of additive therapy. And I, I think that becomes a more important question to ask when you just look at how central P2I12 activation via ADP is to the whole process of platelet activation. And it's a much more central mechanism. Um, you know, aspirin, you know, while being a contributor, I think is, is relatively light on that scale. And then there's also potentiation of adverse effects that you get with aspirin, you know, so you're going to predispose patients, even with low, low intensity aspirin, if you apply it over a lifetime, you're going to get some level of prostaglandin inhibition that you didn't intend to and have, you know, a protective gut mucosal erosion and potentially bleeding with that. So there's at least a, a thought there that, you know, maybe the aspirin isn't adding value. And it wasn't until we had some enterprising Dutch physicians and practitioners with a triple therapy trial in Willis, you know, they they essentially did something like that would have caused a lot of pearl clutching in the U.S., which was drop an aspirin from from an arm and look at just essentially a dual thrombotic therapy strategy with anticoagulation and a P2Y12 inhibitor. And then we saw that replicated. That was like blood in the water for industry. And they were very comfortable now um, having arms in trials that dropped aspirin from analysis. And so we saw that replicated in all these triple therapy versus dual antithrombotic therapy trials where aspirin was kicked to the floor. And so then you, your next logical question was aspirin doing anything good in these trials. And so this idea of focusing on single antiplatelet therapy, I think is, is compelling. But I'll also remind everyone that if you go back to the original approval of clopidogrel, there was an aspirin versus clopidogrel comparison. And that was the Capri study, which actually looked at, it was basically a prevention population, both primary and secondary high risk patients and did find superiority for clopidogrel. Overall in that trial was, you know, small event numbers and, you know, not huge reductions, but there was superiority to P2Y12 inhibitor only strategy in that trial. And so it is um, very logical, I think, to now look at whether we should transition um, most patients. And the question I think at this point is, when do you do that? Is it a month? Is it three months? Um, is it immediately? And I think we'll we'll probably get answers to all those questions and start to move probably towards aspirin being relegated to the acute setting. So you can't, you can't knock ISIS-2 off off the ledge. It's too, it's too important. Now, when it comes to recent things that add to this conversation of dual antiplatelet therapy, um, just a little over a week ago where the, was the European Society of Cardiology uh, annual meeting, and they presented quite a few things that are relevant to this conversation, including their 2020 updates to the non-SD segment ACS European Society of Cardiology guidelines. And although there are a lot of things that are important that they updated in those guidelines pertinent to this conversation, they really have recommended a strategy that revolves around Prosegel as the primary P2Y12 inhibitor choice. That also includes recommendations that the routine pretreatment with a P2Y12 receptor inhibitor is no longer recommended, given that there's a lack of established benefit. And they also talk a lot about the duration and saying that generally 12 months, irrespective of type of stent, 
is what is recommended in these non-ST segment ACS patients, but that shortened durations or extended durations or modifying by switching DAP or de-escalating DAP strategy could be done at the individual clinician judgment. And so I think that is a lot of what we've talked about. I'd like to dive into each one of those three in a little more detail. Yeah, I, I love the last one where they're just like, I don't know, do what you want. Like, and it's all, it all seems to be fine. <laughs> I think that's so, kind of the, the conclusion of the conversation we just had, right? It's, there, there's a lot of confusion and it seems like it's all okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of um, you know history here that's fighting against probably what the reality is, which is you know that aspirin is probably no longer really terribly relevant to this conversation. I, I say that, and I would not go out and stop everyone's aspirin, but I think that's really what what we're getting to is if you use certain you know low thrombotic uh, drug loading stents and a potent PTY12 inhibitor, that probably is going to be a viable strategy. It's just that nobody can come out and say that that's what you should do for everybody because we're not quite there yet. But I, I think that's really what, I think that's what they're trying to say is that, hey, it's okay to do this and six months of antiplatelet therapy for a stent, it's good, it's okay. And, uh, but if you want to do the old stuff too, that that's okay for right now. I, I think that's basically what, what they're saying is they're hedging a little bit just because we, you know, would like to see more replication of these findings and consistency with these. The problem is it'd be nice if the stent field stopped moving so that we could like capture a snapshot and, um, you know, instead of just seeing this constantly evolving uh, piece. And so I think that's where all the, the confusion comes is we're extrapolating errors into the present. We're reluctant to give up our, our toys, you know, that we've been holding on to. So it's like growing up, right? We have to grow up and evolve and um, Andy and I got to get rid of Buzz Lightyear, which is was aspirin in this case. So I think you have to, you know, we're moving towards that. It's just we're not ready to say that that's what you should do. So the recommendation not to pretreat individuals prior to angiography. Are your is your institution largely one that loads folks on PTY12 inhibitor? Um, yeah, we do. I don't, I think that again is a tough one that goes all the way back to like Credo, right? Where we looked at this idea of preloading. We saw the PCI cure sub data to suggest that short-term outcomes are better. There are many, many other ISAR trials that look at preloading and, and the benefit of that. And, and the failures have really been um, somewhat more recent. And I would bring up the data with Prasagrel. Um And so Acoast was a negative trial which looked at pretreatment versus more delayed treatment, which we thought was kind of a slam dunk. And then there is the Atlantic trial with Ticagrelor, which looked at pre-hospital initiation of Ticagrelor and again failed to show benefit. So now we have two randomized trials that suggest that those aren't helpful, but keep in mind those are also versus clopidogrel. And so it may just be an intensification question instead of preloading or not. You know, they did uh, publish another trial out of the ESC this year, that was the, I'm going to call it the Dupuis trial, um, which looked at early versus conservative um, loading and kind of getting at that practical question of when do you load with these patients? And um, they seem to suggest they're different. It was an underpowered trial, you know, so hard to know what to make of that. Um, I, I would say it's always been really dichotomous in practice anyway. Um, not everyone gets preloaded. Not everyone in the U.S. gets preloaded. In fact, probably only min the minority do, despite it having always been an ACCHA recommendation. So the fact to say that it doesn't matter or not probably actually just mirrors what's happening in, in reality. 
And now if you have a patient who is put on ticagrelor, for example, and you come to find out that they have cost issues or they develop dyspnea, how do you approach switching? Do you switch automatically to prosegrel? Do you switch to clopidogrel? Do you do testing before you make that switch? Um, what is the current recommendation from Dr. Dunn? Well, let me tell you what, what I think should happen and then maybe what I actually do because they're there are two separate things that are, are limited by, you know, the system that I think we operate in. I think, um, I think genetic testing is helpful. Um, you know, there are some randomized trials now that, that poo-poo that a little bit, that the importance of that. Um, but I think defining, you know, non-responsiveness is, is a useful tactic. And that was, you know, addressed in tropical ECS and then genetically through uh, observational data and others. And so I think ideally you would know what you're walking into if you're thinking about de-escalating. And now with generic availability of, of Prasagrel, that gives you options um, because it used to be a, a, a question of de-escalation of Clopidogrel for cost reasons or not. And now that, that we're starting to see that evolve a little bit, I think we owe it to ourselves to define the risk for the patient and have a better informed conversation decision-making about that. I think if you're blind to all of those items, which I'll say that for the most part we are where I practice, your options are to try to, to limit the risk. And we know the most vulnerable period is probably the first month after the event. And so you can make an argument from a population perspective to treat everybody with high intensive therapy within the first month. Um, and that would limit the ischemic risk and probably won't see really a lot of bleeding. So when you look at, at these clinical trials, when we talk about major bleeding events that we're talking you know, two to three year follow-ups and not 30 day follow-ups. So it's, it's pretty uncommon to see major bleeding in that setting. And so if we can obviate the ischemic risk, most of the ischemic risk in that setting, irrespective of whether you're, you know, a poor genetic metabolizer or a non-responder, then we can probably um, get away with treating it like a population level and doing de-escalation blindly at 30 days and still having pretty good outcomes. I think ultimately it would be nice to take a hybridized approach and continue to, to treat with intensive therapy for the first 30 days for most patients, and then do guided de-escalation in an ambulatory setting. That would be what I would like to see, but you also have to have infrastructure to support that. We have done switches in-house as well, and I think um, your ability to do that, whether it's in an inpatient or an outpatient setting, is really predicted upon or predicated upon your ability to follow up with these patients in a systematic way. And so uh, this is a really great role for ambulatory pharmacists in cardiovascular clinics. You could, you could make your business, I think, by just managing antiplatelet therapy after these events in a, in a very logistical way. Because as we talked about therapeutic inertia, we may have plans to de-escalate somebody later, but therapeutic inertia will also suggest that that doesn't happen a large percentage of the time. And so we're kind of kidding ourselves if we think that by writing in a note that we're going to do X and Y at, at discharge or after discharge, it, it probably doesn't really happen. So I'd like to see us be a lot more strategic about that and uh, ideally not um, do de-escalations unless in, in the event of adverse effects in hospital and manage that really once, you know, your inflammation storm and your, your prothrombotic storm calm down from um, the index event and manage that in the clinic. And I think that's a great pharmacist role. And that is largely the actual 
you know, recommendations for the switching includes reloading the patients. So it is important to recognize that um, that is something our ambulatory or community pharmacists are going to have to get used to seeing too, because when I do this in the outpatient clinic, it involves prescribing a loading dose that they pick up at the pharmacy. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think the number of times I've been called about it is appropriate, but is certainly something that we can include when we're doing education of future pharmacists, because there is sort of room for that to be done in the outpatient setting. We appreciate you taking the time to be on CardioScripts once again, um, and hopefully we can make it a regular thing. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us on this CardioScripts Classic DAPT edition with Dr. Steve Dunn. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.